I told Pastor Fred Middle, the lead pastor at Crosslands, that I was going to preach through the book of Hebrews. And he said, you are absolutely crazy. I would never do that. <laughs> um, Hebrews is a complicated book. And, uh, and it's actually way more complicated than we think it is on the surface, but it's also way less complicated than we make it. Pastor Don Horbin at Cedarview just did a sermon series on Hebrews. Um, it was wonderful. Pastor Don's a great expositional teacher, and he took 58 weeks to get through the book of Hebrews. Okay. Okay, I'm not doing that. Um, we're not taking 58 weeks to get through Hebrews, um, and, uh, and I just don't think that that's what God's calling us to do, because Hebrews was actually written as a sermon. Hebrews is not meant to be a book that's read, although we read it. It wasn't written to be read, it was written to be spoken. And so that was, that was its intention, and, and that's really that's really interesting when we look at Hebrews because, you know, we would never actually just open up the book of Hebrews and say, here, let's, let's read the entire book, usually. Although, the first sermon that I ever preached was to myself <laughs> in a, I was in an auditorium that was about 1,500 seats in this auditorium. And it actually felt very strange for me because I, I had my Bible with me and I got up on the stage and I stood behind the lectern and I looked out at the empty seats and it made me nervous. <laughs> and, and there I was standing nervously at a place that I knew that God was calling me to stand. I think I was 17 years old at the time. And I opened up my Bible to the book of Hebrews, and I started reading, and I read it as a sermon. First ever sermon I preached was to myself, and it was the book of Hebrews, and I read the entire thing. It is long, and it took just over an hour to read it out loud, and I was like, darn, can't do that at the church. It's not going to work, um, but it was such a powerful book. And so we're going to get into Hebrews. We're going to pick out some of the main themes. And if you've been with us before, you know that a sermon series is normally four, but we're pushing this one to be six. Yeah, I know. This is the first time we're breaking with tradition. So um, this is going to be a six-part sermon series that's going to take us through the main themes of, of Hebrews, and I'm really excited about it. We're also going to um, we're going to have two guest speakers in, in this. Well, not guests. Well, one's a guest, one's not. Um, Pastor John is going to be taking one of the sermons. And one of our supporting churches um, for our first year is Niagara Celebration Church. Their lead pastor, Tim Clausen, is going to be joining us, and he's going to be taking another one of the sermons. And, uh, and we're really excited about Pastor Tim coming and joining us in, in a few weeks. And uh, I'm going to be here for it, so... It's, uh, it's not because I'm taking vacation, it's just because I really wanted him to be able to come and, and, and give a word, and he's on vacation, and he wanted to preach while he's on vacation because he's crazy like that. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> okay, let's, uh, let's, let's get into it. Actually, oh no, I want to make one more comment. Um, Hebrews is a different theological bent to it. So, 
most of our normal church, most of our church experience and our theology is built on Pauline theology. More recently, we've been starting to shift towards gospel theology, which is, um, which is because of a change in how we're reading the text. We're actually starting to believe that you can teach from narrative, which is really good. And, uh, and so we're, we're starting to build our theology on the person of Jesus as represented in the gospels. But Hebrews is, Hebrews is slightly different. It comes from a slightly different approach. And so we're going to hear some things that come out of this book that are, that are challenging to, they don't contradict, but they aren't the normal way we get to the end answer. They're not like, here's Paul's formulaic, systematic approach. We're actually going to go through a slightly different approach through the book of Hebrews to get to the same end, which is Jesus Christ is indeed ruler of the world. So we have this, uh, this sermon series called Superior by Far. Um, there are three notes on Hebrews that we need to know. One I've already made. It's intended to be out loud. Two, Hebrews represents a journey from shadow to fulfillment. The, the author of Hebrews, who I like to pretend is Luke. Nobody knows who it was, but I like to pretend it's Luke because if it's Luke, then Luke wrote more of the New Testament than Paul. That would be cool, right? Um, but the author of Hebrews is, um, he, he's, he's using a little bit of Plato's allegory of the cave, not, not overtly, but in terms of way of thinking. This is a shadow. This is the real. This is a shadow. This is a real. And he's, and he's doing that, and he's doing it with Jesus being the real. And, uh, and so that's, that's an important note that we need to make. Um, the other note that we need to make is, uh, is that we're always talking about um, movement. We go from, from bondage to freedom, from old to new, from looking, uh, from, from looking back to looking forward. And so those are things that, that happen all the time. If you want to interact with any of the material today or have questions because I, I lost my train of thought and left something hanging and you're like, I don't know what you just meant. You can text on your tablet on today's message. Um, all of the notes are there as well as you can make a text and I will get to that at the end of the service. So let's start. We're just going to start off by reading little scripture chunks. By the end of today's message, we're going to be um, in chapter 2, verse 9. But we're just going to start very briefly reading um, 1, to four, 1, 1 to 4. And, uh, and then I'm going to pray. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom we, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the image of the unseen God. Jesus is the image of the unseen God. He is incarnated as man. This is a revelation unprecedented. It is, it is un, 
It is shocking. The, the whole idea of God bridging the divide between human and divine is the idea of Jesus becoming human. We've talked in length about how we cannot have relationship with an abstract God that is all out there. It leads to deism. When God bridges that divide, he says, it's not just me being away and separate, although I am other, I am holy, I am different than all of you. It is me becoming human. That now you have a tangible, touchable, understandable, even for us, something that we can look at, that we can say, this is what God is like in human form. And so he is the unseen, the image of the unseen God. And we see that right in, um, we see that in, in verse 3. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is also the wisdom, the Sophia of God in the creation of the world. So here we've got this like big statement. Huge statement. You're starting off a sermon with some massive, big presuppositions. These are, this is where we're starting right here. These are huge statements spoken into a Jewish community. And so he is the Sophia of God in the creation of the world. He is the wisdom of God present. And we see that right, right here in, in the other side of, of verse 3. It's he upholds the universe by the power of his word and we also see that in verse 2, through whom God created the world. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. Jesus is also the rationality of God, the logos of God in the created world. And, uh, and, and so we see that, sorry, that one's verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, the rhema of his, of his power. And so, this is the start. Here's the introduction. Pastor gets up and he's like, P.S. Jesus is absolutely everything. He is, he is everything. And I know that you, you don't know what to do with that because you're Jewish. You're, you're sitting here in a synagogue and now you're hearing that Jesus is above every prophet. Jesus is above every ideology. He is above your experience. And he is the name. This is a thesis for the rest of the whole book. This actually informs the entire point of the entire message. Jesus is superior. So this is, this is hard in Jewish theology to, to wrap our head around. But it's hard, it's hard in our world to wrap our head around. To think about Jesus as superior to every causal thing that happens in my life. Jesus is superior to, well, thank God for this sometimes, Jesus is superior to our bosses, right? Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior. <laughs> There's a couple of people that are bosses here and they're shaking their head at me now. <laughs> they're like, nope, no. But Jesus is superior to, to, every, to every person, every title, this is where we're going with this entire series. So we take it from Jesus superior, from creation to all the way now. You're like, wow, big thought. Okay, cool. We move into the next set of, of verses. And, and where he takes this is, is really important because he's going to start talking about angels. But we're going to go through right now seven Old Testament scriptures 
that he's going to hit us. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to explain what's going on here, okay? So we're starting in verse 5, and we're going to go through to verse 12. So remember, Jesus is superior. Actually, I'm just going to read verse 4 again, so it just bridges nicely. Having become much superior to angels at this... at Having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. For to which of his angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, where he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his minister he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire but of the sun he says your throne o god is forever and ever the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning of the heavens, um, at the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Also, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Okay. So he's, he's doing stuff that, that pastors are told not to do in sermons. Okay? I went to school for this. You're not supposed to string seven passages that are unrelated to each other and just go bam, 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 bam to try to make your point. But, you know, the author of Hebrews didn't actually go to seminary for writing sermons, and he wrote it under, in, in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So which is better? I'm going to go with his writing is exactly what God wanted to say, and I'm just going to go through it, and then I'm going to tell you how he got there, okay? So verse, verse 5, he starts off not saying it is written. He starts off by saying, God said God said. He's making an extreme case right here. I mean, I remember, oh geez, guys, I remember when I was, when I was dating back in the day when I was a teenager. It was so much fun. And, uh, and there is no greater line in the church today than this one. God told me I was going to marry you. They're not, it, it works great, or not, no, but it's, God said, this is like highest appeal to authority ever. You, you're playing the God card right there. I mean, I had the exact opposite experience. I was dating, and it was lovely, and we were in love. It was beautiful, and then God told her that we were going to break up. She's like, God told me. You can't say anything to that. It's just like game over. You're done. There's no coming back. God told me. So if God said, there's no further argument to be had. It's like, oh my gosh. So we learned, you know, how to use and abuse this, this word. You know, God said, God said, God said that you need to give me everything that you can just to make my life more luxurious. We've, we've seen that happen on 
on on TV. You know, we've we've seen that kind of stuff happen where where people abuse God said. But here, this isn't for the benefit of the author. The author chooses to remain anonymous, and he uses this appeal to authority. He says, God speaks. So in verse 5, and, and then the whole argument again, and again, he said, and again, he said. And so they're putting together the, the he saids, and they're saying, this is proving Jesus' superiority. This is it. God said he's superior, and so he's taking all these in verse 6, he says, let all the angels worship him. Let all the angels worship him. Well, this is a huge point. Why do angels matter? Well, in, in this culture now, today, we don't think a lot about angels or demons very often. Um, when we do get into these conversations, they typically go very mystical and they go very strange or very fast. Um, I remember in the 90s, Frank Peretti wrote a book called This Present Darkness, and he followed it up with Piercing the Darkness. There are people in this room that have read that book. There are other people who are going, what are you talking about? They were, they were novels based on spiritualists, based on this idea of angels and demons in every single corner and all over the place, making all of these, like, influencing the, the, plebe the plebeian humans around them. And, uh, and, and, and this, is, this is the way that, that you know, in, in that time, um, that was what we, we were thinking a lot about angels and demons, and it created a lot of fear. It created a lot of stuff inside the church, and so church leaders started to step away from it. And, and we've been churches have been emphasizing a more naturalistic perspective of the world, and that's just how church is trending in the big scale right now, looking more towards natural. So it's weird to talk about angels here. But in their culture, angels are very much, the, they're, they're to be venerated. They are closer to God than we are. And so, so that idea there is to say the angels, who even in our world are still real. We just don't talk about them much. They're still real. Um, the angels are closer to God. And this text is saying, no, Jesus is superior to even the angels. To even the angels, Jesus is superior so, because, and he's saying it right here in the Bible, let all the angels worship the Son. And so, that is, um, or worship the firstborn. So, that's really important. And in verse 8 and 10, but of the Son, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. What he's doing here is he's saying, this person, Jesus, pre-existed humanity. Although we were introduced to him at the nativity, he pre-existed humanity. If he pre-existed, then we also know that he is more superior. And so he is making his case by using seven different scripture verses that Jesus is superior to angels. I'm going to teach us something about biblical interpretation that's important for us to understand because it's going to affect your Bible studies. It's going to affect how you read your Bible. What the author is doing here is he is breaking all of our rules of how to understand Scripture. He's using a, a, an interpretation tradition called the Midrash. So this is, it's, it's important, it's technical, but it's important. The Midrash, to, to put it simply, is a tradition of interpretation that was used in the first century that says that God 
is constantly revealing himself through scripture and through action. And so what it means is as I experience an action, I can look back at scripture and I can say, oh, that's what God meant when he said this. So when you look at the minor prophets, if you're ever reading any of the prophets, the prophets were people who, who they read scripture, and, uh, and, and Daniel is an example of it, where, where he's reading the scripture in Jeremiah that says that, that, that the exile will be brought back. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar is a better, no, sorry, um, Nehemiah is a better example of it, so we'll go with that. They're, they're both reading that, that it's going to come back. They're going to come back and land back in Israel. They're going to rebuild the walls. So we'll go with Nehemiah, and they're rebuilding the walls, and, they, and, and he looks at it, and he says, this is what God meant when all of these prophecies were made. Here's the understanding of it. Here is the revelation of it. And so as, as the community of, of people would gather, they would look at the, the way that um, one theologian said it is they would look at scripture and they would look at the newspaper. They would look at scripture and they would look at the newspaper and say, this is what God is doing here. And they would make their statements based on scripture and the newspaper saying, this is how it fits together. This is what it means. So the newspaper that, that the author is looking at here is the newspaper of Jesus coming into the world. What does this mean? How do I understand it? And so he comes to scripture and he goes, oh, it makes sense when we read all of these psalms. Nobody before that point is thinking those psalms are about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit goes, that right there. Nobody could see it. It was a mystery. We see that all wrapped up in the, New, in the New Testament. We see mystery, mystery, mystery. We see it right here. And the Midrash tradition allows the, the rabbis of the day and the teachers of the day to look at Scripture and to say, this is what it meant. It has an old meaning and it has a new meaning. And in the book of Hebrews, this is the reason that Pastor Fred was like, I ain't touching that book. Because the book of Hebrews is built on this. It's built on this understanding that says, I get it. That scripture, which might have meant something else. I'm going to take a famous one. Um, the, the, the prediction of the virgin birth. Right? It's found in Hezekiah. The prediction of the virgin birth of the Messiah is found in, in the book of Hezekiah. And its original meaning, the, the first time it was written, was there was actually a woman who was pregnant, who was going to give birth to somebody who was going to set Israel free. That was the meaning. And it was understood to be, this is what it is. Yet, when Jesus is born of a virgin, they apply that verse again and they say, oh my gosh, there is a greater meaning. And so, very technical, but this is, this is the way that the revelation of God grows throughout Scripture. There's a Latin word for it, a foriorti. And, uh, and, and it grows and it builds upon itself. And every time it becomes increasingly clear till you see the person of Jesus. That's what scripture is doing. That's what's going on here. However, the way we read scripture today is different. We read scripture under a German-influenced method um, called Sitzenleben. 
and it's literally translated the situation in life. So this reading of scripture, we read it this way. We say the, that the Bible was written in a context. It was written in its historical setting for the purpose of them first. So the book of Hebrews was written for the purpose of the first hearer. The first group of people who were going to hear it, which means for us to understand it, we need to enter into their context the best we can to be able to get what's being said and then climb what we call the, the hermeneutical ladder. We, we climb up to what does it mean today? That's the way that we've studied church or studied the Bible. That's the way, it's a very healthy way of studying the Bible. And that's the way that our Western Protestant tradition has studied the Bible for the past, I would say, 400 years. That's the way we look at it. So what we do is we let the authority of Scripture speak for itself. We don't read in our own opinions into Scripture. We don't read into today's information much about what Scripture says. We read, we allow our experience to be formed by Scripture. That's what we do now. But this is a very significant change in the way that scripture has been interpreted by the church, and that may cause a whole bunch of questions for people, but this has been a significant change that's happened historically in church tradition and in the treatment of scripture. Both are very good, and it's just these are two different ways. So when I'm telling you all of this, I'm actually teaching from a perspective of Sitzen Laban. I'm telling you the context in which this scripture is created. And so that's important. When you read your scripture, there are two things that happen. The first that happens is you hear of a story that is old. And you hear something that has happened a long time ago. And that's where we build our understanding of God. God did this so we could trust him. The other thing that happens is that God reads with us by his Holy Spirit. Every single one of us has the Holy Spirit. God reads with us. And he speaks to us and applies things to our life. And there will be times, if you're reading the Bible, there will be times where you read the Bible where God's like, see that in your life right there? That needs to change because of this scripture. I was reading 1 John just this week. And, uh, and I'm reading 1 John every day going through it, just the whole book, just reading First John every day for a week, and every single day, God's like, and adjust that, and adjust that. Well, the first hearers weren't hearing that because this is my life. So God is doing two things. He is talking in the history, but he's also talking to me. Okay, that is a good lesson on how we exegete scripture. Um, and, and so we can understand, as we move on through the book, we can understand that when the author of Hebrews, and Paul does it as well, when the author of Hebrews is quoting the Septuagint, the Old Testament, he's quoting it and he is saying, understand that a new thing is being spoken here. Understand that everything is changing. Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. Okay, so let's go on. Um, in... Let's read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We're going to keep on seeing how this actually affects us. Therefore, 
we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. See that, mo that momentum piece, that movement thing? Lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared at, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by his gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What we're seeing here is we're seeing something really, really important. If what the prophet said was real, if it was bared out in reality, then it's reliable. You follow what the prophet said. But yet he's taken the, the words of the prophets and he said, but there is someone greater. Jesus has come. And if you neglect Jesus, then you neglect everything. If the prophets were right and Jesus is greater than the prophets, then you better follow Jesus. His greatest point is to say, you've got to follow Jesus. You've got to recognize his superiority because he's proven himself faithful through the angels, through the prophets, and now I'm showing you that Jesus is greater, so you've got to follow him. What, what condition are you going to be in? Ask this for yourself today. What condition are you going to be in if you reject the greatest offer of salvation ever? Where does it leave you? What does it leave you with? He's saying right here, be careful. It's his first of multiple pastoral exhortations. Be careful that you don't just let this pass you by. You have to acknowledge Jesus and who he is. So to firm up his point, he ends the passage with this. He says, For it was not angels that God subjected the worlds to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? This is Psalm 8. The son of man that you care for him? For you made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, this still applies today, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Nobody had thought of Jesus as the interpretation of Psalm 8. Nobody thought of that before. And so now we're saying, oh... God took himself from his heavenly throne 
submitted himself to be less than the angels, becoming human, and is glorified to be more than the angels. Jesus is superior to the angels. That is what First, uh, that is what the first and second chapters of Hebrews is about. And the way it really applies to us is it sits with us and says, if Jesus is more superior than the heavenly hosts, if he speaks, if, the, if a heavenly host speaks and says, this is going to happen and it happens, how much more, how much more when Jesus speaks in your life, when you're reading scripture, when you're attending to church, how much more credibility do you need to give the words of God? How much more space in your heart do you need to make for the words of Jesus? These words shape us. They change us sometimes against where we thought we were going. And his words have authority, not because somebody said so, but because he's more superior than even the angels. And so our encouragement today is do not neglect this great man of Jesus. If Jesus God's way of rescuing humanity, which the whole of the Bible tells you it is, we cannot, we cannot neglect him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And perhaps there's a point in your heart and in your life for the past season of your life that you have not intentionally gone out of your way to neglect the words of Jesus. But maybe you haven't sought them out enough. You look at your own life and you go, wow. If this is God's way of, of saving all of humanity, have I invested enough energy into hearing him? Have I invested enough energy into pursuing his words for my life? And so today, I'm going to pray for us. And the Holy Spirit is already doing work in people's lives, going, yep, you're right, Pastor Rob, I, I, I know what I'm being called out to do. I know that I'm being called out to in community. Seek out what God is doing. I know I'm being called out to in scripture. Know it. Read it. I know I'm being called out to say that, that we are, that we are, um, that we are on this process where God is sanctifying us and changing us, making us more like him. And so God, I pray that you would continue to challenge our hearts. God, that you would challenge the way we think because if this is such a great salvation, then help us invest the energy in to understand exactly what you're doing even today. Today, we don't see the fullness of everything being made subject to you. But we stand in that tension, in that moment when we know that what you have done has been complete, but it hasn't yet been completed, and so we ask, God, help us understand you more. I promise, church, help us understand you more. In our own lives, help us understand you more. In Jesus' name, amen.